So we are continuing in this series called The Story. And if you haven't been with us, The Story is based on this book, uh, which is called The Story, interestingly enough. And uh, this is a, uh, a version of the Bible which attempts to break it down into a, a story that you can read. So it tells the entire story of the Bible. And over 31 weeks this year... Uh, we are going through this series. What we usually do at Genesis is we'll pick a topic um, and we'll go through it for five, six, seven weeks until we all get tired of talking about it and then we move on to something else. Uh, but this year we're doing something a little different and that we're taking 31 weeks and we're doing it in, in, in spurts, okay? So we're not going 31 weeks in a row, but over the course of this year, uh, we're gonna walk through the whole Bible and, and I've heard a lot from a lot of you that have been coming and just loving walking through the word of God. But I wanna tell you, um, if you're if you're just getting with us, if you're if you're new to this and you're just coming to Genesis Church, you're not too late to join in. Uh, it's been a great ride so far, but every week we try to keep people up to date on where we've been. And so uh, we have a couple copies of this book at the Info Hub, and so for free. And so if you're new here, I think we've only got a few left. But if you're new and you want to uh, start reading along with us, and we and we do hope you'll read along with us, uh, we we'd love to give you one of these uh, just for being here. And so we've got uh, three or four of them left. And after the service, you can go out and grab one. If you give them your connection card and say, "Hey, I'm new here. I'd like to get a copy of the story," we'll give you a copy of the story. If if you don't have the book, it's all from the Bible. And so that's what I love about it is it's actual NIV scripture. And so um, I'm using this one, uh, the, the story, and uh, this is the whole story. Uh, but on the back of our worship program, there's a reading program that you can follow along with us. And so, um, like I said, you can go through the Bible or you can go through the story. Either way, we hope you'll stick with us and go through this series with us and, and, and read ahead. So we like to have you read ahead because on Sunday morning, we can't cover the entire story. And so as we go into chapter 10, we're going to be reading from the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, uh, I have mine, you might turn there to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1. And and so just to catch you up, if you've missed a week or a couple of weeks, uh, here's where we've been. God has selected this group of people called the nation of Israel to be his treasured possession. He calls them a holy nation. They're all descendants of a man named Abraham and uh, who God promised he would make his descendants as many as there are stars in the sky. And God promised that he would give them their own land. And so uh, we refer to that as the promised land because it's land that was promised by God to the nation of Israel. And it's a land that God said was flowing with milk and honey. So it's a fertile land. It's a productive land. And over the next 700 years, we read about how God put in place his plan to get the nation of Israel to this promised land. And, and he raised up leaders to preserve the Israelites and to, to, to win battles against their enemies and to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. And God raised up all these leaders and all these people whose great stories we talked about. And now they're settled in the promised land. Uh, they're, they're in this place uh, that God promised them 700 years ago. And all we can say about them is that, well, they have good days and they have some not so good days, right? And that's what we've talked about the last few weeks. And all, all throughout this series, we've been talking about how there are actually two stories in the Bible. That, that when we read it closely enough, we see that there's our lower story, the story of the people in the Bible, and, and how we go through ups and downs. We all go through cycles in life, and we see that every day, and you see that every day. And then there's God's upper story. And God's upper story is being played out even today, and it doesn't change. 
And so there's these two stories that are going on at the same time. And, and the truth is, last week we talked about this story that was a little bit odd, wasn't it? I mean, was that story about Ruth a little odd? I mean, there's this, uh, this lady and she leaves uh, her homeland and goes to another place with her husband and her two sons and their families. And, and in the span of a couple years, she loses her husband and both of her sons, terribly sad. And, and then they move back, uh, she with her daughter-in-law moved back to their hometown and there's this this kinman, kinsman that comes in and buys the family's land and takes Ruth the daughter-in-law as a bride and how the two kind of came as a package deal and the truth is it's kind of hard for us to understand some parts of the story because we don't live in that culture right I mean would you admit that it's it's a little difficult to think about uh, a woman coming back home today and being bought with a piece of property and taken as a wife that way it's a little different because we don't live in that culture right well it got me thinking about how cultures change over time and how even a generation or two ago, we look at things that we did or thought or read and think, well, that's really different from today. And here's what got me thinking about it. I saw this magazine ad uh, online, and and this is a physician, apparently, and it says 20,679 physicians say luckies are less irritating. And so here's a physician saying that, hey, if you're going to smoke a cigarette, this is the one to smoke. And we look at that today and go... Well, we wouldn't really do that in our culture, right? Or or how about this one? Uh, Guys, this says sooner or later your wife will drive home. One of the best reasons for owning a Volkswagen. I don't know if you can see, but that Volkswagen is crumpled in the front left corner. Ladies, does that make you want to buy a VW Beetle? I don't know. Or how about this one? Guys, do you want to pick up a lady? How about blowing smoke in her face? That's a good way, right? That's a little culturally different than probably what we see today, huh? Or how about this one, moms? You know the benefits when you're nursing babies, right, of drinking a Blatt's beer or two, right? Well, this talks about the nutritional value on babies of a nursing mom drinking beer while she's nursing. So uh, there you go. That's a few generations ago. Or how about, before you show this one, don't show this one yet. Okay, this is just a great example, I think, of how words don't mean the same thing this generation that they used to mean. I don't know if you can read that. This is for American Export Lines, and it says, Every Voyage a Gay Cruise. And so I think you can look at that and you can see even words today don't mean what they meant a generation or two ago. Would you agree with that? And so as we read the story, it's sometimes difficult to see uh, how the story is playing out in this culture because we don't live in that culture. But the truth is we we look at these ads we don't understand because we don't live in that culture anymore either. Uh, But ads then were just like ads now. They all appeal to a desire we have, right? They all appeal to our desires, and and many of them appeal to this desire that we all have to fit in. We want to fit in. We want to be included. We want to be a part of something. And advertisers know that, and and so they they try to write their ads to appeal to that inside of us. Well, in chapter 10 of the story, we're going to read about two men uh, who choose two very different paths. Uh, A man by the name of Samuel and a man by the name of Saul. They were both leaders of Israel. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And our story actually begins before Samuel was born. It begins with his mother, Hannah, and Hannah's husband, Elkanah. Now, Elkanah had two wives, uh, a wife named Penaniah, and then his wife named Hannah. Now, th- the truth, I mean, culture was different. There was polygamy going on back there. Now, I, I personally think marriage is difficult enough with just two people, I don't know what benefit anybody would get out of introducing a third person into a marriage or a fourth person, but the truth is that's what happened uh, back in those days. And so Penaniah, one wife, had children, and Hannah didn't. 
Okay, but scripture tells us that Hannah was the favorite wife. And as you can imagine, this caused some friction. It caused some rivalry. And so Penaniah would often tease her rival Hannah until she cried about not having children. And in one of the worst, absolute worst husband moments in the Bible, guys, listen up. In 1 Samuel 1, uh, verse 8, uh, her husband Elkanah says this. Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Guys, husbands, listen. Just a rule, just a little tip. Don't ever ask the question that you don't want the answer to. All right? What we're going to see as we read through this is that Hannah has a deep desire to have a child. And so what she does is she then goes into the temple and she starts praying very intensely for a child. And there's a priest in this temple, in the tabernacle, and it's a, a man by the name of Eli. Eli is there. And so here's what we see if we skip down to verse 13. It says, Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving. It's kind of like when I read, my lips are moving, but my voice is not being heard. Eli thought she was drunk and he said to her, how long will you keep getting drunk? He says, uh, he says, get rid of your wine. But then Hannah replies, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I've been pouring out my soul to the Lord. Now I've got to ask you, when was the last time you prayed so intensely that somebody could have mistaken you for being drunk? I mean, Scripture tells us that we can boldly go before the throne of grace, you know, that we can boldly ask for things. And what I want you to see is that Hannah, uh, Hannah's prayer is going to be answered here in a minute. And the reason that Hannah's prayer is going to be answered is because she's praying with the right motives. She's praying with the right intensity and the right motives. And so here's what she prayed. If you skip back a verse or two, you'll see in verse 11, it says, uh, and she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And, and so Hannah is praying this prayer, and she's praying intensely, and she's praying uh, with the motive that she's going to give glory to God. So God, if you give me what you want, I'll make sure that you get all the glory. That's what Hannah says. Now, now here's what I want you to see. Hannah's desire for a child is so deep. And, and so many times when God's not giving us what we want... What, you, what I tend to do, anyway, I'm not going to put this on you, but what I tend to do is I tend to think that maybe he's not listening or that, that maybe uh, God doesn't care. Or sometimes maybe you think, if God's not answering your prayers, that maybe he doesn't even exist. Well, I've got to tell you that, the God, that God not answering your prayers like you want is not an indication at all that he doesn't exist. In fact, if that were the case, there would be times in my kids' lives where they would swear that I don't exist, right? Because I don't always give my children what they want. But so many times, you know, when, when we're not getting what we want, this is often when people walk away from God. Like, like, I've asked this prayer, I've asked time and time again, God's not given it to me, and so I'm just going to walk away. But, but that's not what's happening in this scripture, not Hannah. This experience push, pushes her in the exact opposite direction. She grows closer to God through this. She, she wants to pray more intensely about this. She cries out to God. She pours out her heart to him so intensely that the priest thinks she's drunk and tells her to get rid of her wine. What a great lesson for you and for me today, that, that the more dire our situation gets, that we can get closer to God, that we can draw comfort from being close to him. Now, if you've been around church any, any length of time or if you've been around Christians before, you've probably heard a phrase that goes something like this when, about God answering prayers. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, 
And sometimes he says not yet. Or some, some people will say sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he'll say, I've got something better for you. Have you heard that phrase? Anybody heard that phrase before? Well, I hate it. And I hate it not because there's no truth to it, all right? But I hate it because it's not very helpful. Because usually we say that to somebody to whom God has said no, right? And so we'll say, oh, sometimes God says no, but sometimes he says not yet, you know, trying to give somebody some hope. But sometimes God says no for the right reasons, right? But, but in Hannah's case, she had gotten a no, or at least a not yet. But she cries out again with passion and with faith, and God answers her prayer. And he gives her a baby boy who she names Samuel. And he's the one that gets the book of the Bible named after him, even though she was the one faithful in prayer. Now, this is a good news, bad news situation for Hannah, okay? Uh, Because God has rewarded her with exactly what she asked for, a little baby boy. But she's promised him to God. And so what happens is after he's weaned, she takes him to the temple, to the tabernacle. She drops him off uh, to live with and learn under the tutelage of Eli, the priest. Now, Eli also happens to be the leader of Israel at this time. Now, every year what happens is Hannah drops by on his birthday uh, to give him a gift. And we see in the story that God rewards Hannah for her obedience. In fact, uh, this is important to remember because it's going to come up again in a few minutes. But, but God gives Hannah three sons and two daughters. So this woman who was barren before, who pours out her heart to God and prays and says, hey, if you give me kids, I'll use them to glorify you. God rewards her with children. That's what happens. And as Samuel grows up, he learns to love and serve God. And Eli is a great mentor for Samuel. But what we see in the story is he's not that great of a spiritual leader for his home. In fact, he's got two sons who aren't really following in Eli's footsteps. They're not following his, they're not following God. And so what we do is uh, they're stealing. We see that they're stealing from offerings at the temple, that they're sleeping with the women who are serving there. They're abusing their power. And as a result, God decides he's not going to give power when Eli dies from Eli to his sons. But instead, he's going to make Samuel the next ruler, the next judge over Israel. And so one night, uh, God, God decides, and you can see this on 1 Samuel chapter 3 in your Bible or page 132 in the story if you have it. God calls out to Samuel. Okay, Samuel's lying down. He's, he's drifting off to sleep and God calls him. But Samuel has never heard the voice of God before. And so he doesn't know it's God. So he thinks it's Eli calling him. Did you know that if God's never talked to you before, he still may talk to you? Like if you've never heard the voice of God God may still decide someday to speak to you. I mean, if you think about it, everybody has a first time. Everybody that's ever heard from God, heard from God once for the first time, right? And so you may be here today and you may be thinking, this may be why you're here. You may be thinking, God never talks to me, but maybe he's trying to talk to you. Well, Samuel didn't recognize the voice of God, so he never heard. So what follows this really odd exchange of Samuel uh, hearing this voice and getting up, going to see Eli and say, Eli, you called me. And Eli's saying, no, no, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. You, you know how like when you're uh, just drifting off to sleep, if your kids wake up, if you have kids and they're like, mommy, I need a drink of water. You know, I, I, I heard a noise. I need my blankie. Like, will you come tuck me in? Will you come check on me? You know, and so they keep coming up and getting out and you're just drifting off to sleep and they keep waking you up. Well, this is kind of what's happening with Eli here. And so finally he decides, he realizes what's happening. He said, it's God calling you. And so here's what happens next. In 1 Samuel 3, verse 10, it says, The Lord came and stood there, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. You know, when we hear the voice of God, 
there's nothing else we need to say. Speak, for your servant is listening. You know, sometimes we want to say, God, now that I've got your attention, here's what I want. Okay, or, or God, will you change him? Or will you change her? Or will you change my situation, change my circumstance? Or, or how about this? Hey, God, why don't you tell me your plan? And then I'll tell you mine. And we'll decide together which one is better. Okay, is that going to work like that? No. Speak, for your servant is listening. That's all you need to say. Speak, for your servant is listening. But we're not very good at that. So here's what, let's, let's just practice it together, okay? Say this with me. Speak, for your servant is listening. One more time. Speak. For your servant is listening. Good. Okay. See, here's what I figured out in my years of living now, 43 of them now. My life is better when I don't run it at all. Okay. And now that's certainly true in my spiritual life, but even in my practical life, I mean, if it weren't for my wife, I would often forget to eat and usually not have on clean clothes. I mean, she, she just remembers those things, you know, that those things are important. At, at work, I'm so thankful for people in our office like Robin and like Tricia and the people who have like schedules and know the stuff that needs to be done and have systems to put it together and, and to, to remind me, hey, you need to talk about this this week. You need to write about this this week. And I'm so thankful for those kind of people, you know, and I'm, I, I'm a runner. I love to run, but I don't like to decide how far and fast to run. So what I always have to do is sign up for a race and then download a calendar that tells me every day, here's how far you need to run. Here's how fast you need to run. So I can go do it. I'll go run, but I'm not going to decide, you know. And, and then in, in my life, I, I use the Google calendar. Anybody use electronic calendars? You know how that works? And so if, if I've got an appointment, it needs to be on my Google calendar or there's a pretty good chance I'm not going to show up. And so if you schedule a lunch with me, unless you watch me put it on my calendar, so sometimes you'll be talking to me and, and you'll say, hey, let's do lunch. And, I, and I'll get out my phone and I'll start, and you think I'm texting somebody else and I'm not. I'm putting it on my calendar so I don't forget. And, be, and it's important because, you know, if you have an appointment and it's on your calendar, uh, it's going to pop up on your phone. It's going to pop up on your computer, right? Well, you know, if you've used electronic calendar, how many again, how many use electronic calendars? Okay, good. So, you know, if you have an electronic calendar that you, people can send you an invitation, right? Anybody can send you an invitation to come to a meeting, to come to an event. And so you'll get an invitation, and it looks uh, something like this, right? And so you'll get an invitation. Do we have the invitation? Do we have the invitation? Do we have the invitation? We may not have the invitation. No, we don't have the invitation. Never mind. Well, you know what an invitation looks like. You get an invitation, and it says, uh, so-and-so has invited you to a meeting. You can accept, or you can decline, right? Or some of them say, maybe. Now, do you, do you guys use maybe very much? Uh, the truth is you could say maybe now, but when it comes time for the meeting, you can't really say maybe, right? You're either going to be there or you're not going to be there. So you can accept or decline. That's the truth. Well, when it's an important appointment, like if your wife sends you an appointment to celebrate your wedding anniversary, for instance, you better accept. You agree, guys? Yeah, if you've been married for a while, you need to accept. Well, the same is true if you get an appointment from God. If you get a divine appointment, if you get an invitation from God, you can accept or decline. And if you get an invitation from God, I'm going to tell you, you really better accept. And that's what Samuel is doing. That's, in Samuel's case, that's what he did. He said, speak, for your servant is listening. He was available. He was ready. He accepted that invitation. And here's what happened. If you skip down to verse 19, 1 Samuel three nineteen, it says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And so God blessed Samuel because of his obedience. Remember, God blessed Hannah 
because of her obedience. God blessed Samuel because of his obedience. And when Eli died, Samuel became who, the man who would be the last judge over Israel. We talked about the judges leading Israel. And as a great leader, he was a great leader. He led the Israelites in worshiping God, and they thrived, and they defeated the Philistines under Samuel. But the Israelites were a stubborn people. Uh, oftentimes, if you read in your Bible, the Bible calls them a stiff-necked people, right? And so that's how they were. And so some discontent starts to well up under Samuel. And they come to him with this request. Now, up till this time, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, Israel has been led by judges, uh, men and women like Samuel, who are raised up by God to give wisdom and to lead. And so the judges would lead, but God was the king. Like God was the king over Israel. The judges were the leaders on earth. But the judges were more about wisdom than about might. And the nation of Israel, well, they were tired of being oppressed by all these other nations. And so Samuel, they came to Samuel asking him to appoint a king to, to lead them. And First Samuel 8, 8 uh, verse 6, it says, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, See, Samuel thinks that they're rejecting him as a judge. But God's going to set him straight. He says, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you, Samuel, they have rejected. But they have rejected me, God, as their king. And so God tells Samuel he will give them a king. But first, Samuel is supposed to warn them about the dangers of a king. And so that's what he does. And so Samuel goes to the people. He calls them together, calls the elders together. And he says, hey, a king's going to require a lot from you. Like he's going to want your loyalty. He's going to want your obedience. He's going to want your devotion. He's going to want some of your livestock, some of your crops, some of your riches. And he may even want some of your children. I mean, it's, a, it's an expensive decision to bring in a king. There's going to be a lot of consequences for this decision. But the elders and leaders of Israel didn't relent. They really, really wanted a king to rule over them. And listen to their rationale. I think you'll see it's not so different from the rationale that we use today when we make a lot of the decisions we make. Uh, 1 Samuel 18, 19 says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Verse 20, Then we will be like all the other nations. You see, Israel is tired of standing out. They just want to fit in. I mean, how close to home does that hit to some of us? I mean, none of us really want to stand out, do we? I mean, at least not for the wrong reasons. Uh, We want to be a part of something. We want to feel like... We belong somewhere, like we belong in that neighborhood, like we're qualified for that job, like we've earned a seat at that table with all the other decision makers. We want to feel like we're accepted in that group of friends or like our kid belongs on that team. And if, if we have to bend the rules a little bit to make that happen, well, for many of us, that's okay. But there's a problem. See, God chose Israel to be a holy nation. He, he chose them to be set apart. He chose them to be separate from everybody else. And he wanted to use them to attract other people to them to him, to himself, but how can he do that if they look so much like everybody else? You know, they're supposed to be his treasured possession, which means they aren't supposed to look like everybody else. Well, did you know, if you're a Christian, that God wants that for your life too? Like in in that verse that Cameron showed while we were leading worship, that 1 Peter uh, 2, verse 9, he's talking to the church and he says, did you know that you are a holy nation, a treasured possession of God? And so uh, he's talking to the church and he's saying, hey, church, you are supposed to be set apart too. You are supposed to be separate from everybody else. If if you're a Christian, God wants that. And so what happens is if your coworkers go out and hit the bars after work every night and you go home to your family and you think, well, I'm doing it for the right reasons, but nobody seems to notice, you know, or, or your, your friends go out and, 
and they go have dinner together and they're, they're hitting on that bartender or they're hitting on that waitress and you think, oh, come on, I'm, I'm with friends. It, it's not going to hurt anything, right? But you don't because you know that you've got a family, you've got kids at home and they do too, but you don't understand why they do it and you don't. And you think, well, maybe they'll notice and maybe they'll come to Christ because of that and nobody seems to notice. But God's called you to be set apart. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Now, the pattern of this world is to put my needs first. You know, the pattern of this world is to look out for numero uno, right? And if that means your family has to suffer a little bit because of it, you know, so be it. If that means you have to lie a little bit or, or cheat a little bit to get where you want to go, well, that's okay. You know, if that means you don't quite put the right number down on your income taxes or on your expense report, or maybe you don't double check your math, or, you know, when you graze that car in the parking lot, you don't leave a note because nobody really saw it anyway. That's okay. That's what the world says. But God says you shouldn't do that. You don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I wish we had a lot of time to talk about the renewing of your mind and how that happens, but that's really a whole other message. But listen to the promise here, okay? The promise is not that you'll have a great life. The promise is not, you know, that you'll be honored above all others. The promise is that you will be able to test, to approve God's will. So God has a will for your life, right? He has a purpose for your life. And when we conform to the ways of the world, we can't always see it. But when we choose not, or when we choose to, not to conform, Scripture promises, we will be able to test and approve God's perfect and pleasing will. Well, just like God has a plan for you and me, God had a plan for Israel too. But they were so busy conforming to the patterns of this world to notice it. And so they wanted a king so they could be like every other nation. And God answered their prayer. Right? Sometimes he says no. Sometimes he says not yet. Sometimes he says yes, even if it's not what's best for us. And that's what happens here. In other words, in, in God's upper story, his will always prevails. But in our lower story, sometimes God lets us win, even when it's not in our best interest. And so God gives Israel a king. And not just any king. He gives them a king that's exactly like the king that they would want. You know, a king that looks kingly. And we see it in 1 Samuel 9, verse 1, or page 136 in the story. It says, There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul. Okay, this is our second character, son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than everyone else. So this is the person that God anoints as the next king, a man by the name of Saul. He was young, he was handsome, he was tall. He was, well, he was Paul Mumal. I mean, that's who he was. If you guys don't know Paul, Paul's our lead pastor. He preaches here from time to time. He's a head taller than I am and younger and better looking and everything else. So uh, this is who God anoints as the king. He's this young, handsome, tall. You know, if he were living in the U.S. today, we'd say he looks very presidential. You know, it was this man who looked exactly like the king. And so Samuel gathers the people together and he's giving what amounts to his farewell address. And in it, he reminds the people of all God has done for him. And as he kind of twists the knife a little bit, he says, but you have rejected him as king. And that's why you're getting this man as king. And this tall, handsome, young, kingly king. And the people are excited. But Saul is not quite as excited. In fact, Saul, the man who would be king... Well, he's hiding. 
he goes and hides. He's actually humbled by the occasion. And so it seems that when his name is called, he's nowhere to be found. Instead, he's hiding. But what we see is that Saul very quickly gets over his humility. I mean, the power starts to go to his head. And what happens is that slowly, Saul, who was chosen by God through the prophet Samuel, turns away from Samuel. And turns away from God. And in fact, together, Saul and Samuel could have been a really powerful combination. I mean, if you think about it, with, with Saul's power and charisma and Samuel's connection with God and his wisdom, just think how great the nation of Israel could have become if they had stuck together, but they don't. Saul turns away from God. Saul is impatient and stubborn, and he fails to listen. And so here's what happens. God tells Saul through Samuel to attack this group of people, this nation called the Amalekites. And so uh, he tells Saul once again, just like we've read a couple times in this story, to completely destroy everything that belongs to the Amalekites. Don't leave anything behind, not a single possession, not a piece of livestock. And, and so Saul and the armies attack, and it's a rout. It's an absolute rout. Israel wins in a landslide, but Saul spared their king. And he spared, he kept some of the choicest livestock for himself. And in what is, I think, one of the best confrontations in the Bible, uh, Samuel goes to Saul to confront him about it. Well, Saul sees him coming, and he decides he's going to fire the first shot. And so he says, Saul, to Samuel, he says, I have carried out the Lord's instructions. I've done everything he told me to do. And Samuel goes, hey, great, that's great. Hey, is that cattle I hear lowing in the background? You know, what are the, are those sheep that are bleeding back there? What, what is that sound I hear? You didn't know there was sarcasm in the Bible, did you? But there is. I mean, I'm telling you, this is great stuff in here. You didn't know that God had a sense of humor. He has a great sense of humor. And this is how he sometimes confronts us, right? You should read your Bible if you haven't been reading it. And Saul tries to cover it up. So he says, he tries to hide what he's done. He says, oh, you know what? Oh, that's the livestock. You know what? My men took those. My, my men took those. They're, you know what? They were going to use them. This is what Saul says. They were going to use them as a sacrifice to your God. That's what Saul says. They were going to use them as a sacrifice to your God. Not my God, Saul says. Not the God who put me in power. Not the God who appointed you as prophet and you picked me out of the crowd to make me the king. Not that God, but the God that you serve, that I no longer serve. I have rejected him, is what Saul is saying through that. I have declined him. Then Samuel lays out what's probably the key point from the story, and this is where we're going to focus for the, the few minutes we have left. If you don't take anything else away from this uh, today, you should take this away. First Samuel fifteen twenty two. This is the key verse. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings? You were going to give him as an offering? Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed better than the fat of rams. What a bold and profound statement to make to the king. To obey is better to sacrifice. You see, from that point on, Scripture tells us that, that God was grieved that he made Saul the king. That he was sorry. That, that he was grieved about that because of his behavior. But because he didn't obey, Saul's reign as king was effectively over from that point. The rest of it was just a matter of time. And so here's what we can learn from this story, Okay. To obey is better to sacrifice, yes, but when God sends us an invitation, we better accept, right? Because here's what happens when we decline. I thought this was really good, all right? When you start to decline God, you start to decline. How's that? You start to decline God, you start to go downhill. That's what happened to Saul. The minute he declined God, he started to decline. From that moment on, 
His rule as king was basically over. Now, let's just contrast the story of Samuel and Saul for a minute, okay? And even Hannah. Hannah obeyed God, and God blessed her, right? Samuel obeyed God, and God blessed him. He gave him wisdom and influence to speak over all of Israel, made him a prophet that everybody in Israel recognized. Saul didn't obey God. And while he had power for a while, he eventually fell out of favor with God and lost power and lost influence and lost the chance for a great legacy. When you start to decline God, you start to decline. And here's the other thing the story of Saul teaches us. Okay, partial obedience is disobedience. Saul did almost everything God instructed him to do. Almost everything. He took his place as king, just like God told him. He he fought the Philistines, which we didn't didn't really talk about today, but he did, just like God told him. And, And he defeated the Amalekites, just like God told him. But he didn't do everything God told him. And that was a problem. Because God desires obedience, not sacrifice. And because partial obedience is disobedience. Now, at this point, I just want to ask you this. Like what, what's God calling you to? What's God calling you to obey? You know, where in your life are you settling for sacrifice where God's calling you to obedience? You know, maybe God's calling you to be more intentional about investing spiritually in your children or in your family. And you're thinking about sending them to a summer camp, a Christian summer camp this summer. That's great. It's a great sacrifice. But it's not obedience. You know, maybe he's telling you to go on a, on a short-term mission trip. And you're thinking, you know what, maybe I should just pay for somebody else to go. Well, that's great. That's sacrifice, but it's not obedience. God desires obedience more than sacrifice. It could be that God's asking you to give away more of your income, and, and that makes you nervous. You start thinking, maybe instead I'll just serve more. I'll give more of my time. Well, that's, that's a great sacrifice, sure, but it's not obedience. I mean, I could go on and on with these examples, but I don't think I need to. Because if God's invited you into something, you probably already know what it is. And you probably already know all the alternatives you've laid out. And hopefully you know by now that I think if God's asking you to accept or decline, that you should accept. I don't, because when you start to decline God, you start to decline. Yeah, I read a story while preparing for this message that I think illustrates this point really well. It was written by a man who was recalling an incident from the third grade, and he wrote this. He says, I was in the third grade, and my parents sent me to a Christian school. I was listening to our teacher read a Bible story just before we were going to go out to recess one day. She was telling the story of a boy named Samuel, the story we were just reading, and how he was called in the middle of the night, and Eli saying it wasn't him, and finally realizing it was God. And Samuel goes back and lies down, and sure enough, a little while later, a voice comes, Samuel. Samuel sits up and he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. My teacher read us that story, and she ended it right about there. The bell rang, and everyone went flying out to recess, but I was frozen solid in my chair. I couldn't move. Usually, I was the first one out the door. I loved recess, and so very timidly, I went up to the teacher. I don't even remember what her name was now, but I said, Mrs. So-and-so, I was stammering. I was embarrassed, and I said, do you think that God speaks to little boys today? And she said, why do you ask? I said, well, I don't know, but sometimes when I'm out on the playground, I see the kids gang up on kids who aren't very popular, who aren't pretty, or who aren't strong, and there's something that I feel very strong inside of me, like God is telling me to make those kids stop doing that. Or, or sometimes I'm in the bathroom, and the guys are using filthy language and telling terrible stories or calling their parents' names, and I get this strong signal that I ought not to do that myself and maybe tell them to knock it off. It just feels like there are times when God is speaking to me. 
He says, looking back on it now, I realize she had my whole spiritual future in her hands because I was saying, do you think that God still speaks to little boys? And she said, oh, yes, Billy, God still speaks to little boys. And if you listen and obey, he will do that for your whole life. And then she told him, if you were to stay open to the leadings of God in your life, I think God would do something really strong with your life someday. And he says, and even when I was only in the third grade, I remember thinking, well, that's what I want to do then. I want to let God speak to me and lead me, and I want to try to go wherever he tells me to go, and let's just see what happens. And I'm so thankful that little boy accepted, because that boy grew up to be Bill Hybels, uh, who is the pastor and, and founder of Willow Creek Church in the suburbs of Chicago, which is now the fourth largest church in America. And to write countless books about leadership and leadership in the church and to influence thousands upon thousands of pastors and church leaders, definitely including me. Now, finally, I just want to talk to one more group of you. I want to say something to the group that maybe you don't know why you're here. I mean, you know physically why you're here because your wife keeps bugging you to come and you, you thought maybe you'd shut her up if you came or, or you drove by and you saw the sign and you didn't, you're not sure why, but you felt like maybe you were supposed to go to Genesis Church or that friend or coworker gave you a card and they kept bugging you about coming and you thought, well, they're not going to stop until I go. But you don't know what the purpose of you being here is. Well, I want to tell you that God's got an invitation for you too. He's invited you into something. He might be inviting you to experience the most fulfilling relationship you could ever know in your life. And that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. See, if, if you can't hear the voice of God, if you've never heard that voice speak to you, it may be that you've never invited him to speak to you. Because he will speak to you. And even if God's never spoken to you before, he will speak to you now. John ten twenty seven says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Well, how do we know him if he's never spoken to us? I give them eternal life. This is the trade-off. This is awesome. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And so when God sends us an invitation, we can accept or decline. But when we accept this invitation from Jesus for the first time, and we accept this invitation, we get the promise that we get to live forever. I don't think I need to tell you in this verse that Jesus isn't really talking about sheep here. He's talking about us, about you and me, and about the love and wisdom and direction we will give him if we'll just follow him and the reward of eternal life that we get if we accept his invitation. And I hope you know that I want you to accept it because if you decline God, you start to decline God, you start to decline. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for that uh, promise, that promise of eternal life if we follow you. But um, And that's great and it's incredible and, and we love the idea that if, if we accept your invitation, that we get a ticket into heaven. But God, even now, we need you to act in our lives. And Lord, I just know that there are a lot of us in this room that have sensed an invitation from you, that have uh, sensed an invitation to do something greater with our lives, that we know that you want to do something more with us than you're doing now. And we're hesitant. We're, we're nervous. We're anxious uh, because we don't know what it's going to mean for us or for our financial situation or for our family situation or for our work situation, God, that you've called us to something greater and we're nervous about accepting that i just want to ask you as i pray with still every eye closed every head bowed if you're in a situation now where you're, you're trying to make a decision and you feel like maybe god's called you to something but but you don't know which way you're going to go and you would like prayer for that right now would you just raise your hand right now even in your seat thank you for those hands god i just i just lift those people up to you right now those of us who are struggling with a decision that, that we think maybe you're on one side of that, but God, our, our flesh, the world, 
something else is on the other side. Would you help us to, to hear and discern your voice? That, that promise of scripture from John 10 that just tells us that, that we know your voice, that you would help us to hear that and discern that. And Lord, I pray even now as we go into a time of communion where we get to celebrate the fact that still amazes me that you came and died and took the punishment that we deserved. God, I just thank you for that. I thank you for uh, the people in this church that have made that decision, that have given their lives over to you. And Lord, even for the ones who haven't, I thank you for, for bringing them here today, God. And I just pray that you continue to work in all of us. You continue to bring all of us closer and closer to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul, uh, who wrote much of the New Testament, uh, wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about what he calls the Lord's Supper, what we often call communion. And we're going to take communion together this morning. Actually, we're going to take it um, here in a minute as Cameron plays. Um, there's two tables here in the front. There's two in the back. And what I'm going to invite you to do in just a minute is, as soon as I walk off the stage, is to get up and go grab the elements. You'll grab what looks like a cup, but it's actually two cups. The bread is in the bottom. Uh, the juice is in the top uh, on, on two of those cups. And so you can come and get that on your own time and take it on your own time. But here's what Paul wrote about it. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so what we believe about communion at Genesis Church is if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come take it with us. You don't have to be a part of this church or any particular church or any particular denomination. But if you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to come up or go to the back, uh, grab the elements and take them on your own time. And we'll wrap up with another piece of worship here in a few minutes.